0: This is a Willets Point-Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willets Point-Shea Stadium.
1: Subway to Shea Podcast, episode 50. That's right. You heard it. Episode 50, the landmark 50th episode of the Subway to Shea Podcast. Anthony Rivera here with you talking about all the news and happening surrounding that team from Queens, the New York Mets. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Subway Shea and listen to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts. Turn on those notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shay. If you are a new listener to this podcast, thanks for joining us. And I hope you consider subscribing on any of the platforms I just mentioned and share it with your fellow Mets fans. If you've been a supporter this whole time, I can't thank you enough. Each and every week, it's because of you that I come back and record another episode of this podcast, and I appreciate you listening in. Subway to Shea's is becoming global. This podcast not only is played in the U.S., but also reaches Great Britain, Canada, Australia, Mexico, the Netherlands, Italy, and... Colombia, and I had to do that for my friend, Medellin Mets fan, Rich Hosick, shout out to him, because he listens in Colombia, and I really appreciate him all the way down there. It's amazing how far of a reach we've got on this podcast. No matter where you listen, please take a few minutes to write me a review and let me know what you think of the show, what you like, what you don't like. I want to make this show better each and every single week for you Met fans out there. So by going on Apple Podcasts, rating the show from one to five stars, hopefully you're giving me five stars, and also leaving comments in the review section, it can only help me to make this show better for you. And I got a review. View from Frank Pidiani, new listener, here to stay. I very much appreciate Anthony's passion and love for the Mets. I recently started speaking to him on social media, and wouldn't you know it, he's a wrestling fan like me. What better combination than Mets and wrestling? All kidding aside, he brings knowledge and love for the team and makes you think about things you weren't before. The Jeff McNeil episode is an example of that. I came on as a result of the Talkin' Mets podcast, and I am here to stay. Let's go, Mets, and thank you, Anthony. Anthony for what you bring to the table no thank you Frank thank you for listening and I appreciate it you know we always talk on social media like you said about the Mets and wrestling and I love interacting with all of you guys on social media that's why I tell you to follow me on Twitter at Subway to Shea also on Instagram at Subway to Shea I'm working on making better content for Instagram but you can always catch me on Twitter you can also rate this show on Spotify that's a new feature on Spotify you can go on there rate the show I don't think there's anything about leaving comments, but if you rate the show, it could help this show get up there in the rankings when it comes to baseball, sports, and even Mets podcasts. So you can go on Spotify, rate the show, and that'll help me out. Make sure to follow my work for Rising Apple. Rising Apple is a New York Mets site on the fan and network. You can read my articles by going to risingapple.com or checking out the links in the description of this week's podcast episode. And this week's article is about... Three reasons the New York Mets, well, three reasons why fans should be excited about the New York Mets 2022 season. I know there's no baseball right now, but there are reasons to be excited about what's going to happen in 2022 if we get this season going. So once you go into the description of this podcast, you will find a link to that article and you can click on it and check that out. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog and the fan-sided network at fan sided. Now, I mentioned it before, it's the 50th episode. It's time for the 50th episode. I repeat, the 50th episode, a landmark episode of Subway to Shay, and I wanted to make this a special one. We had to go all out. We had to go big for this one. And we have a very special guest, so joining me now on the Subway to Shape podcast is the third winningest manager in Mets history with 536 wins and a winning percentage of 534. He is the first Mets manager to take them to consecutive playoff appearances. He led the Mets to the 2000 NL pennant. He's the manager I grew up with and will always consider a favorite of mine. He also has a new book out which we are discussing today, titled Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times, which you can purchase wherever books are sold. Bobby Valentine, welcome to the Subway to Shape Podcast. How are you doing today?
0: You know, I'm doing great. And uh, interestingly enough, when I saw that I was going to be doing this, uh, I last weekend was with John Olrood, who I feel is one of the great players to ever put on a Met uniform. And uh, he was mentioning how he took the subway to Shea often, and no one ever recognized him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and John is. Probably one, of, I feel like, one of the most underrated Mets of all time. And I kind of wish we had him for a little while longer. You mentioned it even in your book. Uh, what a great time having him around consistent hitter, great defender. You even mentioned a story about him standing parallel in front of the base runner to kind of block and help out with the, the left-handed pitcher. I can remember visioning that and saying what a good move that was by John.
0: Yeah. You know, we, we got there together and um, I guess the year before John got there, you know, the left-handers were just having the darndest time holding runners. And, you know, Mike was known for a lot of things and throwing runners out. Wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> Uh, So we got together in spring training, and we said, I wonder what we could do to keep the runner from running on the first move of the left-hander's leg kick, and sure enough, we devised this kind of dance step in front of the runner where you would hesitate and then take a step back to the base, uh, just as the left-handed pitcher would initiate his leg kick, and that would kind of freeze the runners, thinking, oh, he's going back to the base. I've got to be frozen here. There's a lot of controversy, and and John was talking with Matt Franco, who was also together in Arizona. matter of fact, we were uh, at the memorial service for the great hitting coach Tom Robson last weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Matty Franco was mentioning how amazingly well that worked with John at the base, and also mentioned, as I think I mentioned in the book, that, you know, John was just the most spectacular receiver at first base of anyone who ever played there because he had better range at the bag. I like to say that if he went down the line toward the catcher, up the line toward the right field fence, or even if he had to go up high or come out toward the throw, he got to more balls than anyone I think. That ever played. And you know, last thing I'll say is that he gave credit to Cookie Rojas, who was the infield instructor and third base coach at the time, for teaching him how to stretch and stretch with a backhand rather than stretch with an open glove forehand and that made all the difference in the world for him
1: i have a whole bunch of memorabilia in my room i got the 2000 national league champion plaque one of my Ooh. uh great things that i have is the sports illustrated issue of the greatest infield ever how is yeah. that just being you know you had olerud at first we talking about you have Edgardo Alfonso at second who was previously playing at third at the time until Robin Ventura came playing at third and then you got Ray Ardoñez, who was like a defensive wizard that whole situation in 99 just how was that just being able to not have to worry about your defense
0: well actually we tried to play to the defense we had a we had a lot of uh, the statistics that we were using in those days as to you know who the ground ball pitchers were and who the ground ball hitters were and there are a, a, many a specific instance where the guy who came in from the bullpen, or even the guy who was on the mound at the time, would know that uh, we're hunting a ground ball here, and the pitches would be thrown to try to initiate such. So, yeah, that was a that was a really fun year. That was uh, it was great to watch those guys play, and and they put on the you know the defensive bunt plays and the the fake plays that we had, pickoff plays that we had. John actually said the other day just talking candidly that his first spring training when we went over all of these things he had just come from toronto and uh, you know they went over different plays in spring training as everybody does in spring training he says but we never did anything we always use the same number one play and just got it out and let the world be calm but our team didn't didn't settle for that we tried to get the guy out at third tried to pick him off second try to um, you know do things that would uh, actually put us in the driver's seat even though we were on defense and um, you know when when you have buy-in and we I had buy-in we had buy-in from the guys you mentioned all around the diamond Um, once you got you have buy-in it kind of looked good well
1: let's get into right into Valentine's Way I want to start off by saying that I'm not the best reader when it comes to books but I got this last week and I flew through the pages. It is such a great read with great stories all around and the thing that intrigued me the most was the way you kind of pulled down the curtain on what goes on in the clubhouse with the players the coaching staffs and the front office behind the scenes. What motivated you to share all these great stories because baseball can be very guarded at some points.
0: Well it just was my life you know and uh, this Peter Goldbach who's a very good uh, uh, author and is from my hometown of stanford connecticut Uh, you know he he gave me a call and he said "Uh, why don't we do a book i think you have a great life and i said what's it going to take he said well i'll call you twice a week. We'll stay on the phone for an hour and a half. I'll ask you questions. You'll answer them when I transcribe them. We'll put them into a book. And that's what we did. So it was just him bringing up a topic and me talking about it from um, my mind to the heart, from how I remembered it. And uh, it, it all became kind of a, a book. Huh? And it's called Valentine's Way. I'm not finished
1: yeah. with it just yet. We're I'm just getting up to go- going back to Japan for the second time. Um, Uh, A huge part of your baseball life was your relationship with Tommy Lasorda from being drafted all the way through your managerial career and personal life. And that is told in many stories throughout this book. We lost Tommy a year ago. Could you just give the audience a little insight on what Tommy meant to you?
0: Yeah, well i was just lucky um you know tommy's brother harry passed away just two days ago and he was the last of the five brothers um but you know i mean i i left stanford connecticut in 1968 i was 18 years old i had traveled to florida and to massachusetts and to new york city a few times and that was all that i had in my travel bag except for the visits to universities all around the country, which were two days stand. And now I was going to pack a bag and go to Ogden, Utah for a two and a half month stint of uh, rookie league baseball at the professional level. And uh, luckily, the guy that met me at the airport was Tommy Lasorda. Uh, luckily, uh, not uh, that I was Italian, but because he was Italian that we we hit it off. And, and um, you know, I spent every Every waking hour uh either with him in uniform or with him at dinner or in his hotel room or in the lobby or walking the streets all that first two and a half months of my professional career and um it just it it just was the greatest experience of my life we we stayed friends forever and uh i was fortunate enough to do the eulogy at his funeral and um you know, he, he left that indelible mark on my life, my baseball life, my personal life. And, you know, it's funny, it's about Tommy's, that it was Tommy Lasorda, who was the manager, it was Tommy Pechorek, who was my first roommate ever. And it was Tommy Greve who sat on the bench with me together in 1977 with the New York Mets, or 1978 with the New York Mets. And um, he later became the general manager and hired me uh, uh, to my first manager. Job.
1: And then Tom Robson as your uh, hitting coach. So the Tommies I, keep
0: coming along. And, and Absolutely. And, and Tom Robson was as uh, integral a part of uh, my baseball life as any of them.
1: Now, your first taste with the Mets came as a player in 1977 via trade. But unfortunately, the trade was a part of the what's now called the Midnight Massacre. It's been called that for a while. That saw the Mets trade Tom Seaver and Dave Kingman. You were part of the Kingman trade that sent him to San Diego. I'm sure you were excited to come back home on the East Coast and play in New York, but did you realize what you were in for with the Mets fan base and what was going on with the team at that time?
0: No, I really uh, was was out of touch with that. I was uh, dealing with my own career and most of it was on the West coast up until seventy seven uh, I spent a little time, I guess in Charleston, West Virginia, but uh, I played for the Dodgers and the Angels and the San Diego Padres and um, you know the the Mets were were the Mets and the Yankees were the Yankees. but you know in the those 70s years, Uh, There was no ESPN, you know, there was no Mm -hmm. uh, 24-hour talk radio. So uh, the information you got about other teams, especially on the other side of the country, came in the form of boarding news, which was which came out once a week. And, um, you know, you'd read the sporting news, try to catch up on what was going on. But uh, as far as the turmoil prior to the trade, I had no idea.
1: So you fast forward years later when you're a coach on the Mets and they reacquire Tom Seaver. And now you're driving with him to games. How was that experience being now as a teammate with Tom? And did you guys ever strike up a conversation at all about that day of the trade?
0: Oh, yeah. I think that that was, uh, you know, an awful often a topic driving with Skip Lockwood often to the ballpark because, you know, Tom was very opinionated. You know, Mm -hmm. Tom was not uh, one that ever held back thoughts or, or words. And, you know, he felt that you know, that, that, that day in, in 77, he was betrayed and, you know, coming back to the Mets was, was one of those bittersweet moments for uh, the end of his career.
1: You got your first taste at being a manager in Texas and reading this section of the book, you changed the perception of what a manager was from the, you know, the Walt Alston and the Dick Williams days and try to be more like Tommy Lasorda and being with Davey Johnson instituting, you know, pitch counts, rest for the players, playing the younger guys more. Why do you, Think it was hard for organizations to kind of fully adapt to these changes. You know, they bring you in to be the manager and you want to, you know, change the culture of the team. There always seems to be some type of resistance from these organizations? Why do you think that?
0: Well, change is the thing that people like least in life, uh, unless they're the ones that are implementing change on others. Um, and so, you know, there is and was resisted. But, you know, baseball, you know, made its reputation on tradition. And the idea that once you knew what was going on in the game, uh, that was all you needed to know. Once you got the secret handshake, you're in the fraternity and the fraternity was this inner circle of men and very few women who stuck together and and played this this game together? And you know, in, in by 19. 19- 80, there was a lot of talk about the game needing to change, and as I mentioned in the book, the most incredible thing in 73 was that I uh, played for a guy, Bobby Winkles, and Bobby Winkles came from Arizona State. He was the first collegiate manager to ever manage a professional major league team, and uh, his whole soapbox was in 1973 that the game needed to be sped up, that there was too much dead time, that it wasn't going to keep the interest of the young fan, if you could imagine. And that was in 1973, so by the time I became a coach, I was knee deep in the idea that you didn't have to do everything the way it was done for, for the first 100 years, that it was time to reevaluate and understand what really happened in a swing, what really happened in a throw, how you, know, you really should feel the ball. One of the craziest things, I didn't mention in the book, but one of the craziest things ever in, in, in baseball is the, the idea of how you teach it. And you teach it two ways. One, by trying to teach somebody else what you feel when you do something in baseball, because it, the, the, the movement is very quick. So you don't really know what you're doing in that mega second of time of swinging or throwing or fielding a ball. But you know what it feels like, and you try to teach others the feel, or you try to to teach by the way you were taught, and um, the idea of fielding the ball, I always thought was interesting, because you take that glove, and many coaches who teach fielding, when a ball's hit straight at you at the ground, they'll tell you to stick your glove out there with the fingers pointing out at the ball as the ball's coming in. And the craziest part of that is the reason it was always taught that way um, is because the old glove that was first made to catch uh, a baseball had an enormous amount of padding right at the heel of the glove or right where the hand would meet the wrist. And at that bottom of the glove, with all of the padding, it was it was designed to stop the ball coming in. Well, as the glove changed, all of that padding was removed from the glove, the fingers of the glove became longer, and they were tied together. And so the idea of fielding the old way was a <laughs> stupid idea because we weren't using the old glove. And boy, that was a hard thing for people to get across. For them to understand, to this day, there are people still teaching how to field a ground ball the way they fielded the ground ball when the glove had five fingers that were detached and padding only in one place, and that was in the heel of the glove. Long, long uh, talk, but interesting thought.
1: Even now, baseball has even evolved even more. There's more of these Sabre metrics and um, you know, what Billy Bean has been the money ball that he's been talking about and a lot of emphasis on, you know, the development behind the scenes uh, more or less towards the manager on the field. What do you think of how it's evolved into now?
0: Well, I think the information that's out there is all pretty good information. And uh, the idea of using information so that you can, you know, do combat is uh, what every general tries to do. And all that that guy in the dugout is 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 a director you know he's like a conductor of an orchestra if you will a director of a play uh, he's not really managing anything except for the uh, number of outs that he he gives up and 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 gets so you know i think all the new stuff is good i think uh the idea that it's so revolutionary is kind of misleading because you know people always sought after as much information as possible possible that it's more information is a plus and a minus because sometimes as Yogi Berra said you can't uh, go to the plate and think and hit at the same time and uh, as I said earlier that this action is such a quick action that if you're not free of thought during that action it will actually mess up or slow down your reaction time and time is uh, obvious
1: you talked about wanting your players while you're in Texas you know to get bigger because you saw the guys in Oakland, especially, you know, McGuire, Canseco, they were getting bigger, uh, very big. For them, it ended up being steroids. And you talk about there being no leadership from MLB all the way down to ownership on how to notice or combat this epidemic in steroid use at the time. You blamed everyone, even yourself. I bring this up because we are getting ready for, you know, the Hall of Fame announcement and we have a big group of players on the ballot that, you know, may, may not be linked. How do you think that situation should be handled? and should they be inducted or not
0: they should be inducted and I'm, i'll bet dollars for donuts that bonds clements and ortiz all get in even though ortiz was only uh you know insinuated i guess and I maybe even uh, i don't know about bonds and clements maybe it's only in insinuation there too i'm not sure but um you know i think that because you know david was the best designated hitter and you know barry bonds is the best hitter and, and roger Clemens was the best pitcher to pitch in in the era or maybe pitch ever maybe hit ever i'm not sure you know they they need to be in the hall of fame and and i'm sure that that's i'm not sure but i'll, I'll bet those uh, dollars to donut holes that they get in and uh you know, A-Rod's probably not too far behind.
1: Once again, I'm here with Bobby Valentine, former Mets manager and author of Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. Now, I want to get into your time as Mets manager. You know, I really started paying attention to baseball right around 1998. As a matter of fact, my first game with my dad was opening week of 1998 when the Mets shut out the Pirates who was 7-0. And making his Major League debut that day was Masato Yoshi. I know you mentioned him briefly. Now, the Mets were good that year but still missing that piece to put them into real contention. And that's when the trade for Mike Piazza happened. Can you tell us what that trade initially meant to you and the clubhouse at the time?
0: Well, initially it meant a major headache because we had Todd Hundley and Todd right. Hundley was uh, the poster boy of the Met. Uh, he was a spectacular player. You know, he just set a home run record. Uh, I think that year or the previous year for uh, catchers and he was a switch hitter. And my goodness, all of a sudden we were going to have two guys on the team who all-star type catchers, and neither of them could play another position. Well, that was a headache. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Piazza, he, he did change the whole dynamic of that team and gave the Mets the superstar they desperately needed. Eventually, you know, Todd Hundley got traded away before the '99 season. You made the playoffs in '99, and what was a wild season. We talked about a little bit earlier. Went to the World Series in 2000. You know, I always hear this debate from Mets fans on what they think was the better team of the two. To you, which which do you you t- Think had the better roster, '99 or 2000? Now I know you know they went to the World Series in 2000, but the '99 team there was something different about that team.
0: Well, it was it it, it was different, and it was uh, yeah, it, it it was a great team, you know. And and um, you know the the difference between '99 and 2000, I think, is uh, we didn't have to go through Atlanta. You know, I mean, let's face it. I mean, Atlanta was that dark cloud over the Mets uh, the entire time I was there. Sometimes I I even imagined what it would have been like if Atlanta was in another division because, you know, they were really different also. But we were building a team to combat them. I I worked on pitchers hitting and bunting and fielding. I, you know, I thought that one of the differentiators was they had a squad of athletes, guys who could win gold gloves, who could drive runs in, who ran the bases when they got on the bases. And, uh, you know, to play, you know, without that extra athlete, which was what the Mets and other teams were doing at the time, you know, made it difficult. So we stressed all those things, which all went unnoticed, but uh, the, the pitchers took Bunning seriously. 99 and 2000, they hit, took it seriously, uh, you know, there. And, and, you know, and probably the other differentiator, uh, you know, was that uh, Mike Hampton, you know, was was such an athlete. He could hit, and he could feel, and he could run the bases, and, um, and and he was a pitcher, so he kind of he kind of leveled the playing field a little.
1: As a kid, I thought everything was great during this time in Mets land, but in reality, behind the scenes, there was issues between you, you know, the Wilpons, Steve Phillips, it was just heating up. You need to read this book to understand more. I don't want to give too much away, but one thing I will say is that everything I and Mets fans have thought about the Wilpons all these years, I feel like it's... Confirmed in this book. Uh, did you even feel ever during your whole entire tenure that they had your back even through the winning in 99 2000 did you ever really feel that they were behind you
0: wow that's a pretty strong question isn't it did i ever feel that um will uh, the wilpons that you would be talking about fred because fred for the most part was the only one i was involved with uh for those first five or six years and then you know nelson left and fred let jeff into the management group i guess ownership group into the ownership group you know nelson Never let Jeff in. It was kind of <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I don't know what what Nelson thought or knew, but I remember one time. I think in one of the team photos, one of the years along the the way, I think Jeff might have gotten in it in as like the Bat Boy or something. And uh, Nelson didn't allow the photo to be in the yearbook, from what oh. I from what I heard. I I don't know. That's not firsthand factual, but it was um, it was at least one of the stories. So. Uh, I don't know if they ever had my back, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, I really liked Fred, and I really liked his wife, and, um, you know, I wanted to do everything I could for them, but it, it there always was a little bit of a disconnect.
1: One of the stories that I found, uh, you know, ridiculous, and I don't want to give too much away when it happened, but with Jeff Wilpon comparing swinging a bat to swinging a golf ball, I just started golf lessons this month and swinging the golf club like a baseball swing is a huge no-no. So him talking about that, I, I remember mentioning that in your story, him talking about that. I can only imagine what was going through your mind when you heard that from his voice.
0: Well, you know, it wasn't necessarily that it's, a, it's the same swing. He he was saying that, uh, you know, I did, I did a lot of study and, and tried to figure things out, you know, and especially with Tom Robson and Tom House early in my career, who's still the throwing guru of the world. And I think, you know, when when Tom and I started talking about uh, swinging up at the ball instead of swinging down as it was being taught in many circles around baseball, and we started talking about that in the 80s. Um, you know, people wanted to, you know, censor us, uh, get us out of, get us out. I mean, that's not, you can't talk that way. And, and we believe, and I still believe today, that there are basic principles of the swing that rely totally on the laws of physics uh, that allow the swing to be what it is something that's violent but fluid and uh, you know giving you the best chance to connect with something that's coming at you at 95 to 100 miles an hour anyway during the conversation that saying that all these things apply to all hitters who have ever been good hitters and whoever want to be good hitters Jeff popped out and said well that he takes golf lessons <laughs> all around the country and guys teach golf a hundred different ways you sh- we should be able to teach the swing a hundred different ways and uh yeah I, I i'd hit Totally appreciate the comment, but I knew where it was coming from.
1: Now, (laughs) 9-11 impacted all of our lives in different ways. Something I always remember is watching you and the Mets players helping out in the parking lot of Shea Stadium, which became a staging area for the recovery effort. And also the Mike Piazza's epic home run, which to me is one of the most important home runs in franchise history. What you guys did in those 10 days, just to help, just to put a smile on people's faces, even for just a few moments... I thought was amazing. I'd just like to take the time to thank you for navigating through such a tough time the best way you could. I know it meant a lot to a lot of people. You know, without giving up too much away from the book, can you discuss
0: those two events? Wow. Well, yeah, you know, the the recovery effort turned out to be something other than recovery, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it just, it just didn't happen. And, uh, you know, that in itself was really disheartening i mean it was it was a tough time we were all dealing with the same fear the same anxiety the state same questioning of what's going to happen next um you know, as basically the same as we've, we've been doing the last two years with this COVID situation. But when we didn't rescue anyone and we gave such a great effort and so, so many people were, were there 24-7 doing everything they can and the players and, and the organization was uh, doing what they could in, in the parking lot to get supplies down to those who were working so hard. Well, that that was kind of disheartening. And, and uh, you know, then when we didn't know if we were going to play again and we we didn't know if we were going to play in New York for sure. And during that, that week of whatever misunderstanding or discontent or fear or whatever we were dealing with there in that that first week after 9-11, I realized and believed that it it was going to be important to play a game in New York. It was going to be important for us to stand tall and and tell the bad guys that they didn't uh, take the heart out of uh, this great country of ours because baseball means so much and sport means so much. And so uh, we tried to put on a happy face but you know playing that game we we had no idea how to do it how to how to act you know, we, we wound up making a call over to Bobby Cox and say, hey, after the uh, national anthem, how about we uh, shake hands before the game? And, uh, you know, that's never been done in professional baseball. And, and uh, you know, my guys were hugging his guys and wishing him luck. And, you know, that that was anything other than a natural situation. So, yeah, we, we played it and we wondered and we uh, tried, to, uh, tried to get real until Mike swung the bat and, and hit that resounding uh, – home run with a noise that you could hear in Brooklyn and uh, the ball went over the camera stand and uh, the good guy, guys took the lead and the frowns were turned upside down. And it was um, it was one of the most remarkable events that I'll, I'll ever be able to uh, participate in.
1: Now as we wrap up here, before I let you go, do you still follow along with the team uh, every year? Are you watching games um, for the Mets?
0: Oh yeah, of course. You know I've done a lot of work for SMY over the years, so I always wanted to be prepared if they called me and wanted me to sit there and say something. I didn't want to sound too dumb. You know I'm a fan. I I want the Mets to do well. It's uh, I spent about four four decades of my life being part of that organization. So I I feel like I'll always be part of it.
1: What are your thoughts on Buck Showalter becoming manager? I know you guys played against each other, especially in 99 in the playoffs and you know, Buck's been around baseball as well a long time what are your thoughts on him becoming the manager of the Mets
0: yeah you know I got to manage against but but also you know I worked with him at ESPN I kind of uh I think I helped him a little get his job in Baltimore and uh I even asked him to be my bench coach one time it might have been when I went to Boston uh as a matter of fact um so I think he's a really good baseball guy and you know I think that he was the choice of the of the candidates that were out there and I think he's going to do a really good job
1: it was vaguely announced that old timers day will be coming back from the mets they haven't made the official
0: announcement but could we
1: see you suit up one more time in a mets uniform
0: oh uh, uh, i don't know about that one maybe i'll play connie mack and you know wear a bow tie and come out for old timers <laughs> as a uh, as a manager no i i heard that too i don't know if it you know i've heard there's different days right uh, keith's gonna get the. Uh, his number retired. It's yes. Something about kind of an old-timer. Johnny Olerode and, uh, and Matt Frankel were asking me about it the other day, and I didn't have this the specifics on that one. So uh, I think it's going to come back. And, I mean, I could, always, I could always swing the bat and hit. I can't run. I could stand at third and field the ball if it's hit to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Mets are really starting
1: to um, ingratiate themselves to their, their culture now and starting to honor, you know, Keith Hernandez. They did a whole bunch last year with the Hall of Fame with uh, Edgar Alfonso and Jerry Kuzman. And I think that soon that you should be in that Mets Hall of Fame. You had a great Mets career. You know, minus what happened behind the scenes, I thought you were a wonderful manager and you did a really great job taking them to two postseasons. First manager to do that in Mets history. And I think that you deserve your time as well in that Hall of Fame. And I hope Your name gets called soon.
0: You're kind. Thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, Hall of Fame or not, uh, you know, I have a lot of stuff in this house that will always be in this house, and it connects me to the the Mets uh, forever.
1: Well, Bobby, let Mets fans know what you've been up to or where they can catch you on social media. I know you got a Twitter out there.
0: Yeah, I I, uh, do a little Twitter once in a while, and, um, you know, at Bobby Valentine. And, you know, I'm on Instagram. I, I don't keep up with the things as much as i should but uh, i have my restaurant uh, often down in stanford i have my baseball academy in stanford bobby valentine sports academy which is an all sports academy not just baseball um you know the the book's terrific um the president of my film, film company just got through producing a spectacular movie starring uh, Zach Efron and, and, um, uh, and other wonderful stars uh, uh, called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. That will be coming out. Soon, so uh, I'm doing all, an awful lot of things to enjoy myself. I'm with um, Sugar House, the the Connecticut uh, sports betting service. I'll be a brand ambassador for for Bet Rivers, um, and I might even have another little book coming out. So yeah, I'm I'm doing a lot of stuff and having fun doing it.
1: Even all the way through your book, you're always keeping yourself busy, and that's a great thing, Bobby. I can't thank you enough for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate this. And would love to have you on again in the future. You have a great day. You take care, okay?
0: I'm always available. Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: You take care. Bye-bye. That was Bobby Valentine, former Mets manager and author of Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. You can purchase it wherever books are sold. I'll post a link in the description of this episode. You can click that link and purchase that book it's a must read especially if you're a fan of bobby valentine a lot of great stories a lot of behind the scenes look and a lot of mets stories so make sure to purchase that book check it out and we are going to wrap up the show here i know there's a lot of talk about with the mets finally putting together their coaching staff we also had a whole bunch of international signings we're going to get that to that next week we're also going to talk about where we are with the CBA negotiations, and one big story that I want to talk about, we mentioned it with Bobby, and that is the old-timers day. I want to, you know, dive a little bit into that. I know it's not set in stone yet, but I want to know, like, who we should be bringing into this the john oleroods of the world you know alfonso carlos delgado who are the mets that we should bring back uh, Daryl strawberry still looks like he can hit home runs why don't we bring him back obviously piazza and david wright so it will be fun to have that discussion especially when there's not much going on right now with baseball and we don't know if baseball is is coming back so let's let's have a little fun next week let's enjoy ourselves but we're gonna wrap up the show here please take a few minutes to write me a review let me know what you think of the show what you like what you don't like i want to know how to make this show better each and every week and by going on apple Podcasts, rating the show from one to five stars leaving comments in the review section only helps me to make this show better each and every week you can follow the show on twitter and instagram at subway to shea Listen and subscribe to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts. Turn on those notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. Also, I'm a contributor for Rising Apple, a New York Mets site on the fan-sided network. You can check out my articles for Rising Apple as I will leave the links in the description of this episode, or you can go to risingapple.com and search me out. The latest article that I will post is about the three reasons to get excited about the 2022 Mets season. Check that out. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I appreciate you all so very much. We've gotten this far 50 episodes. Let's get to 50 more, and that will do it for this week's podcast. Always remember to listen, subscribe, share, and review for Anthony Rivera. You've been listening to the subway to shape podcast let's go meds